that just kind of lives with a check engine light on? Anybody? Anybody in here? Yeah, okay, that's actually a little more than I thought. Uh, I figured, though, like, it's a room full of poor college students who don't have money to fix their cars. Um, that's not good. Like, it's not good to drive your car with a check engine light on constantly. Or maybe you, like, have a car where the check engine light will come on, and it'll be on for, like, a day, and then off for, like, a week or two. And then it'll come on, and then that's my car right now. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but my dad's probably disappointed. He's a car guy. He's like, got to get your car fixed. But, um, yeah, that's not good, but, like, we got to get to point A, from point A to point B. So we just learn to live with the fact that the engine light's on, and we just kind of ignore it, right? And I think that, like, for some of us, we have, we have the spiritual check engine light on, you know? You just learn to ignore it, and if you ignore it long enough, like, you just sort of forget that it's there, but that's not good, right? Check engine light indicates that there's a problem, there's something broken uh, going on. My goal for the day today um, is really for the Holy Spirit to just wake us up to sin that we have in our life. And maybe even like sin that we have forgotten as sin. Or like sin that we've learned to just ignore. We've just, the check engine light's on, but we've just kind of put it in the back of our brain and, and tried to forget about it and kept going. My goal is for the Holy Spirit to wake us up uh, to whatever that is. To, to help us to stop ignoring um, those types of things in our life. Hidden sin. Uh, my goal is for, for the Holy Spirit to move us to a place of repentance this morning. So that's really the scripture that uh, I'm going to be reading this morning is all about repentance. And it's not fun when the check engine light comes on. You know, it's not fun when you, uh, God kind of puts his finger on sin in your life. But you have to fix it. Like there's something that you have to do about it, about it or else you're going to run into a bigger problem down the road. So that's what we're going to be getting into this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you that we get to worship you. Um, thank you that we get to gather as a church and open up your word and talk about it. Thank you that you're real and you're powerful. You're not just an idea. You're not a distant God. You are a living and active God. You're a God who loves and pursues his people. And I believe that you are going to love and pursue us this morning here through, the, through your word and through this message. So Holy Spirit, come. Come and move. Amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. I'm just going to read all of it. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, for, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said, we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction for you, or his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, so that's a lot. I just read an entire chapter. That's a lot. Some context and like a simple summary of what's going on here. We've talked about this earlier in the semester, um, but Paul, he'd, he'd written actually multiple letters to the Corinthian church. Okay, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and then sometime between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he wrote this other letter, and it was a confrontational letter. It was a letter where he was addressing sin that he saw that existed in that church. And, and that's not fun, right? Like, he didn't actually enjoy writing this letter. He, he, ma he makes mention of that in chapter 7. Um, but if you actually look back at, at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. I, I preached on that maybe a month and a half ago. Paul was expecting to meet Titus when he was in this city called Troas. Titus was the, the friend and coworker that Paul had that he actually, he delivered the letter to Corinth through Titus, and he was hoping to meet Titus in Troas to kind of be updated on how the Corinthians had responded to his letter, but he wasn't there, okay? So Paul moves on to Macedonia, and finally Titus is in Macedonia, and Titus gives Paul word of how the Corinthians reacted to his letter, and it's, it's good news. They reacted well. They had actually repented. So Paul wrote them this letter. They got it. They recognized that they had sin in their church, and they repented of it, and they turned. And so pretty much this whole chapter I just read, chapter 7, is Paul expressing this joy and this comfort that the Corinthians had repented of their sin. And repentance is, is what I want to talk about this morning, as I already mentioned. But before I get into that, I want to just zoom in on something else first. And it's, it's this comfort and joy that Paul repeats. Like, he, he repeats over and over and over again in this chapter that he has comfort and he has this joy. I want to talk about that. Verse 4. Paul says, I'm filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So Paul has comfort and joy, even though his life is full of affliction at this time. Verse, verse 5 and 6, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. We don't know all of the problems Paul was running into, but we see he's running into problems. His body had no rest. He's afflicted fighting without, fear within, but he still had this comfort. And then verse 9, here, here again, he says, as, as it is, I rejoice, not because you're grieved, but because you're grieved into repenting. And he goes on and, and makes even more mention in this chapter of this joy and this comfort that he had. And here's why I, I want to zoom in on that idea. Because I think what gives us joy and what gives us comfort reveals a lot about who or what we worship. 
Okay, what gives us joy or comfort reveals a lot about who or what we worship. Paul, if he worshiped physical comfort or security or everything going right in his life, he wouldn't really have any reason to experience joy and comfort, right? No, and, and he was able to have joy and comfort, though, because he didn't, he didn't worship those things. He worshiped King Jesus. And so what gave Paul joy? It was, it was kingdom things, not security, not making a lot of money. It was kingdom things. It was the Corinthians repenting. Because they repented, he had all this joy. Paul was never dependent on his circumstances being good for joy. He wasn't. Because what were his circumstances? It was affliction. It was no rest. It was trouble at every turn. And I'm, I'm zooming in on this idea because I, I think that, well, here, uh, us as Christians, we, we don't have to just be doing as, as well as things are going. I think it's easy to just, like, slip into to living a life where we're, we're doing as well as things are going. You know, your circumstances are good. Everything's good. So you're good. You know, but things start to turn south. Maybe your car breaks down, that check engine light catches up to you. Uh, you have some relational conflict, whatever, and, and all of a sudden, like, you're a wreck. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. It's possible to have things circumstantially go wrong in your life, but you still possess joy and peace and comfort. We as Christians, we do not have to just be a product of our circumstances. We don't have to be. Paul was constantly running into problems, but at the same time, constantly talking about how much joy he had in Christ, constantly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 through 29, it says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Church, we are in a kingdom that can't be shaken. Like, we can be people that are not shaken by storms and bad circumstances of life. That's, po that's actually possible. It's possible for things to go wrong, but you're all right. I'm not saying live in denial, but I'm, I'm saying that we have access to joy that is so much deeper than good circumstances. And with that scripture, it says we, we stand in a kingdom that can't be shaken. While, while, yes, our joy, the things we find joy and comfort in say a lot about who we worship, also say this, the things that we let shake us say a lot about who or what we worship. If I'm like a person that's constantly stressed out about money, Money probably is somewhat of a God in my life, and I need to check myself, right? The things that shake us say a lot about who or what we worship. There's a, a pastor in our network that passed away a couple years ago. His name was John Draghi. He was um, in charge of LT for forever. I don't know how long. Uh, awesome man. Loved Jesus a ton. And uh, a couple years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer, and over the course of his, like, cancer journey, him and his wife and his family, they would make these, like, Facebook Live uh, videos, and Ashley and I watched, like, all of them, and it moved me so much, because this guy, I, I can't explain it, like, he just, he had so much radical joy and comfort as he was dying. Like, they made a video, it, it was a day or two days before he actually passed away, and he's just, like, praising Jesus. That's so radical, but that's possible. Like, we can have that type of joy. We can have that type of security. We can be unshakable like that. 
And it's because we have the best news ever. We have Jesus. We have the gospel. We, we actually have the spirit of God in us. And a fruit of the spirit is joy. God wants to, to grow joy inside of each of us. So, yes, you don't have to be doing just as well as things are going. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah? Cool. So Paul, in this situation, his, his joy, the kingdom thing that brought him joy was the Corinthians' repentance. So I want to I move into repentance. So backing it up to verse 9, it says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul, Paul is saying here, like, I, I wrote this letter to you, and it, I'm sure it grieved you. I'm not happy that it grieved you, but I'm, I'm really happy that it grieved you to a point where you repented. You turned of your sin, from your sin. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 10, he says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the rest of our time, I'm just going to be in this one verse, verse 10. And I'm going to work through it piece by piece. So godly grief, first part, godly grief. I want to talk about godly grief. So one of the reasons Paul was so concerned about the Corinthians is because there's, there's indication that they, like, didn't really have godly grief. They didn't really feel sorrow for their sin. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, he's, he's writing to them, and he says it's reported that there's sexual morality among you, and of the kind that isn't tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So he's confronting them back, way back in 1 Corinthians, because someone in their church was literally, like, having sex with their stepmom. That's what was going on. And they didn't see it as an issue. Like, they, they didn't take issue with that. They're actually arrogant as a church, even though that was going on in their church. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? So godly grief is appropriate, and we should like, feel bad about our sin. Sin should make us feel bad. And if it doesn't, like, that's concerning. That's, that's a check engine light. Sin should make us feel bad. If it doesn't make us feel bad, it means we've probably grown callous to our sin. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That part at the end, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Greek word there could also be translated to calloused. Take care. Like, watch out so that you don't grow calloused or hardened towards your sin. Most of you probably know how a callous works, but I'm going to explain it anyways. So callous, it, it happens when, like, a part of your skin just gets damaged over and over and over and over again to the point where it's no longer tender. Like, you don't really feel it anymore. It's just, it's hard. You know, you, know, you get in the gym, you do those hang clings. First time, you might get a blister, get, get a few blisters on your fingers. And maybe they'll even, like, rip off, and your skin will be exposed, and it'll hurt. That sucks. And, and then you come, you work out the next week, you might get more blisters, your skin might rip off again. But after, you know, the fifth, sixth, seventh time of going and working out, your skin's just, it's going to be hard. It won't be tender anymore. And unfortunately, I think that that's what happens sometimes with sin, right? We do this thing that, that it should grieve us. Like, sin should hurt us because it hurts God. Oftentimes, it hurts people around us, and it definitely hurts us. 
But when we participate in it, in the same thing over and over and over and over again, this callus builds up on our heart. And we don't feel tender towards our sin anymore. We don't, we don't feel the pain that our sin should produce in us. It should produce a godly grief in us. I think back to the, the first time I got drunk in high school. I, I felt so guilty about it. I was like, I'd gone off. I was spending the night at my friend's house and got some alcohol. And we all just were like, let's get drunk. And we got drunk. And I felt guilty. I like knew I wasn't supposed to be doing this thing. I knew that it was wrong in God's sight. I knew my parents obviously didn't want me to be doing this, but I did it anyways. And, and like, it felt bad. I felt kind of nasty about it. It, hurt, it, like, hurt a little bit. I felt like I needed to hide. But the 15th time I got drunk, I didn't feel that way. You know, why? Because I built up this callus. Like, it felt wrong the first few times, but after doing it again and again and again and again, like, I, it's, it's just normal. It's just there. The, the 20th time you do hand clings, you don't get blisters anymore. It's like that. You look at the Pharisees. They were, they were so callous that even though they were swollen with sinful pride, pride that, that blinded them from being able to see God in front of them, like they, were, they had this callous over their heart. They missed it. They missed God in the flesh. And I think that's why Jesus spoke so harshly with them. He was trying to rip the callous off of their heart. If you're watching porn every day and you don't think twice about it, you've grown callous to your sin. If, if lying and gossip is just like a part of the way you talk and interact socially, you've grown callous to your sin. Like you don't think twice about it. That's a really, it's dangerous. Like that's a dangerous spot to be in. When we, when we get to this place where we're totally callous and numb to the fact that we have sin in our life, that's not good. Your engine's going to break down eventually. <laughs> when we grow tolerant of sin and callous towards sin in our life, we, we grieve the Holy Spirit inside of us. We grieve him. He lives in us, and, and one of his main jobs is to bring conviction into our life. John 16, 8 says, when he comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's that's like one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit in our life is to convict us. And conviction is just simply God calling us higher. It's God identifying things in our life that need to change and just, just calling us higher in them. It's good. Conviction is a gift. It's the best thing that we can have. It's literally God speaking to us. But we can click the mute button. And we do sometimes. And I think if we click the mute button on conviction long enough, it, it, like, we just kind of forget that it's even there. And we're callous, and we just do the thing that we know we're not supposed to do, but we don't even feel grief over it. That's a dangerous spot to be in. And I, I just encourage you, like, if you're in that spot, if you're listening to me and you feel convicted, good, one, that's good, I, I would encourage you, and maybe encourage is too soft of a word, I, I'd plead with you to plead with God to rip the callous off your heart to rip the callus off of your heart. And he will. It won't feel good, but he'll do it. And he'll do it because he loves you. He loves us so much that, like, he doesn't want us to stay in our sin because sin kills us. It destroys us. Like, everyone is on this, this path. Apart from Jesus, we're on this path. And it, the, the destination is destruction. 
Like, that's what sin gets us. That's what sexual morality gets us. That's what, you name it, fill in the blank, whatever sin, it destroys us. It's not good for us. And he loves you so much to, like, he, he loves you too much to let you stay there. So if, if you feel like you're callous, your heart is callous towards sin in your life, I, I, I beg you, plead with God and ask him to rip that callous off. I remember when I got saved my freshman year of college, I just, I felt so, like, exposed, like, so just tender. It was like, in one day, God ripped all the calluses off of my heart, and it, su- it sucked. It hurt. I was like, dang, man, I'm ugly. My life is so ugly. Like, there's so many things I've done that are just ugly, and I, I just felt nasty, but I'm so thankful for that, because God, in a moment, made me tender to my sin again. Like, he brought me to this place where I could grieve about my sin. Godly grief is important. Sin should not, fe- like, sin should make us feel bad. So, so how do we know if we have godly grief or worldly grief? Chapter, verse 10 talks in a minute about worldly grief, and I'll get into that. But how do we know the difference? How do we know if it's worldly grief or godly grief? Here's how we know. Godly grief produces something. And what it produces is Repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. This is a word that is massively important in Scripture. It is such an important word. Whenever really important people come onto the scene, this is a word that's in their vocabulary. I'll show you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. It says, in those days, John the Baptist, important guy, right? John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had a simple sermon. It was repent. That was his sermon. Kingdom of God's here. Repent. Mark chapter 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Another important person, right? Jesus. What was Jesus saying? He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his first message. Jesus' first sermon is repent. Acts chapter 2, 37 through 38, Jesus has, has died on the cross, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's put the, the spirit into his disciples. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and is preaching the gospel to thousands of people. And it says when they heard this, when the, the thousands of people heard this, they were cut to the heart, which is cool, godly grief, right? They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is fundamental in understanding and obeying the gospel. It is fundamental, and it's also a word that carries some confusion and baggage, so I'm going to just, like, deep dive into what that word means. So, it's a, it's a Greek word that's formed from two Greek words, meta and noeo, so the the word meta, it's a Greek word, it's a prefix and preposition, which means after or beyond. When combined with other words, meta often signifies change or alteration, as in the words metamorphic or metabolic. Then the second word, noeo, means understanding, thinking, considering, properly to apply mental effort needed to reach bottom line conclusions. So you put those two words together, you get metanoia. Simply means change of mind, and by implication, a change 
in course, a change in the inner man. That's what the word repentance means. It means a change in the inner man. It means a change in the way that you think. Repentance is adopting new thinking that leads to new living. So what, what is repentance not? Uh, I personally, I grew up in the, the Catholic tradition, and repentance is not bringing a laundry list of sin to a priest and just kind of reciting your sins one by one and then saying ten Hail Marys. That is not repentance, okay? God is not interested in a laundry list of all of your sin. He's not interested in you going to bed at night and just reciting one after the other of all, all of the sins that you committed today. That's, that's not repentance. Maybe, maybe it's valuable, but it's not repentance. Repentance is also not just feeling sorry for your sin. I think that we confuse that a lot. We think repentance is just feeling bad. It's not. That's godly grief. That's important too, but it's not repentance. Repentance doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again or never going to struggle with temptation again. Repentance simply, like I said, it's, it's transformed thinking. It's adopting transformed thinking that leads to transformed living. It's taking a different course. Like you're, you're walking one way. Repentance means you're turning around and you're walking a different way. It starts in your mind, but then it manifests in the way that you act and live. God wants to transform your mind because our mind is really broken. Our thinking is really broken. We've, we've actually been trained to think by a fallen world that's living under the curse of sin. So if we've been trained to think by a fallen world that's living under the curse of sin, we need to be untrained in that and, and trained in something else. This is kind of a bold statement, but I'll, I'll say it. I, I believe that all sin is rooted in deficient and broken thinking. All sin it's, it's not just compulsion. Like, it's actually rooted in broken thinking. Your porn addiction is more than just you enjoying watching people have sex on a screen. It's, it's actually rooted in broken thinking. An eating disorder is more than just someone trying to make themselves look pretty. It's broken thinking. Something is off in the way that our mind is coming to conclusions and decisions. A, a tendency to lie is more than just compulsion. It's rooted in broken thinking. Many of us, I believe, live in, in like these sin prisons in our mind. And Jesus wants to break us free. He wants to train us to think differently. So, so what am I saying? Am I just saying think differently? To repent, you just need to think differently? No, that's, that's too simple. That's like annoying advice, right? No, but the way that we think is shaped in large part by our inputs. Like what we put into our mind affects what comes out of our mind. Our, our inputs influence our output, right, for you math people. So we need different inputs. We need to be guided by something else. We, if our thinking, if we want our thinking to be reshaped, if we want to truly repent in, in the way that repentance is supposed to be done, like, we need to train our mind to think differently, and, and we need different inputs. And I think the best inputs are, are the Spirit of God, the Word of God, in the body of Christ. I think that if we fill ourselves and, and listen to the Spirit of God and we listen to the Word of God and, and we exist and, and live in and listen to the body of Christ, I think God will use those things to, to change the way that we think, to influence the way that we think. And you know, we as humans, like, we're, we're really dumb. We really are dumb. We, we think that we can navigate life successfully without God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, the body of Christ, and we can't. We fail. We do not do a good job of navigating our life well on our own. Do you, do you know what animal the Bible calls you and I? 
It's embarrassing. Sheep. Yeah. The Bible refers to it as sheep. It's like the dumbest animal. That, that is an animal that cannot survive independently. Like, it, it is a stupid animal. If you want to learn how stupid it is, I have this little video. It's pretty funny. It's not in English. That's you. That's us. The Bible says that's us. Man, we're pretty stupid. Really, we are. We, we don't know how to lead our life well. And I, I, if, if that offends you, fine. Like, it's true. You, don't, you and I do not know how to lead our life well. We don't. We need a shepherd. Desperately. 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. That's you, right? You were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We don't know how to lead our life well. We need God's word, we need God's spirit, and we need the body of Christ. The other day I was spending time with Jesus, and I, I feel like he, he spoke this to me, and I wrote it in my journal. Jonathan, why do you think you have a better understanding of how to maximize your life than I do? It cut me to the heart. I was like, dang, man. Yeah, God, you do know how to maximize my life. You, you know how to lead me into abundant life way better than I do. I just jump into holes, you know? Repentance is recognizing that we're off course and that we can't get on course on our own. It's recognizing that our thinking is broken, and it's conforming our mind to him through his word, his spirit, and the body of Christ. It's actually pretty amazing that the creator of the universe wrote a love novel and a life manual to you. Are you reading it? Are you? Are you filling your mind with it? He actually put himself inside of you. He put his spirit in you to speak to you and to guide you through life. Are you listening? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit in your life? God created a family the church, and he adopted you into it. Are you invested in that family? Are you, are you letting people disciple you? Are you listening to wise counsel in your life? Man, this is repentance. It's, it's transformed thinking. And it's awesome because repentance, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So salvation without regret. I'll just say this, you, we, we cannot be saved without repentance. Like we can't, part, a, a fundamental part of salvation is changing course. That's what repentance means, to, to change your thinking, to change course. If you, if you want to be saved, you have to go a different direction. Repentance is, is fundamentally important when it comes to salvation. And it says it's without regret. 
Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Repentance, true repentance, takes our focus off of our past. Like, it, it destroys regret and shame in our life. When we, when we recognize and believe that we're new, and we don't need to be defined by what we did anymore, like, that's even part of what repentance is. Repentance destroys shame and regret. It takes the focus off of our past, off of our sin, and it puts it onto Jesus. And so let's, let's flip it. What's the, the last part of that verse? It says, godly grief produces repentance. It leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So worldly grief. I, I mentioned uh, the question earlier, how do we know the difference between worldly grief and godly grief? It's that, that um, godly grief produces something. Worldly grief doesn't. Worldly grief never leads to change. It eventually just leads to numbness, callousness, and then, and then death. I was uh, looking at a commentary this week, and I, I came across this. I'm going to read it for you. It says, while repentance removes the things that stand in the way of salvation, the sorrow of the world is not at the sin itself, but at its penal consequences, so that the tears of pain are no sooner dried up than the pleasures of ungodliness are renewed. Translation, what that's saying, it's, it's like, you know, you sin, right? Worldly grief or worldly sorrow might feel bad about that sin for a time, you might feel bad about the consequences of that sin, but eventually that bad feeling wears off and sin starts to look enticing again. So you take it, you, you participate in it, and you feel bad about it, but then that feeling of badness wears off and you do it again. And it's just this cycle where there's no change. It's just sin and then shame and then sin and then shame and then sin and then shame and then death. Worldly grief never leads to change. It just feels bad and stops there. And I believe, why does it stop there? There may be many reasons. There's just one I want to I wanna talk about, and I already mentioned it a moment ago, but I, I think it's shame. I think shame is, is one of the main reasons that worldly grief just stays as worldly grief, why we just feel bad about our sin, but we never actually experience transformation or change. And, and I know for a fact in a room this big, there's shame in here. I know there is. I'm sure that there's some pretty nasty skeletons in our closets. Shame convinces us to hide those things and to just perpetually feel terrible about it. Shame keeps all the focus on yourself and what you've done and not, not any focus on what God's done or what he can do. It, shame hyperfixates on your mistakes and flaws. And it lives in the dark. Shame loves hiddenness. And, and I'll, I'll say this, church, like it doesn't matter how ugly you may feel because of your sin or, or what you've done or what has been done to you. It doesn't matter how ugly you may feel. God is not ashamed of you ever. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you in spite of what you've done or what's been done to you. And he wants to free us from shame. Like he wants us. Trevor read the scripture this morning. It, it talked about um, how he, he wants everyone to reach repentance. It doesn't matter how dark your life has been. Like he loves you desperately. God's not ashamed of you. He wants to free you from shame. And I believe that confession is one of the most powerful ways to destroy shame in our life. Confession. As I mentioned, shame lives in the dark. So when we turn the lights on, it, it's gone. Like it doesn't have anywhere to hide. Confession destroys the power of shame in our life. First John chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. I'm going to read it for us. 
It says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how do we get out of darkness? We, we get out of darkness by walking in the light. It talks about confession in there and walking in the light. I, I believe that we just, we do that by being vulnerable with God and, and vulnerable with people about the ugliest parts of your life. And it doesn't feel good. Trust me, it doesn't feel good, but your soul will feel great afterwards. Like, there, there's been times in my life over the past eight years of following Jesus where, where you make mistakes. Like, all of us have made mistakes. We've sinned. We've failed. And it, it's so tempting and easy to hide in that failure and hide in that sin. It costs something to turn the lights on and to be vulnerable about it. But when we do, like, shame just ha- has nowhere to go. I think that it kind of like confession pulls the floor out from under shame. It gives it no place to stand. Uh, it's some, confession is something I'm really passionate about. And I, I try to like lead a lot of the people that I disciple over the years. I try to like really um, lead them into practicing confession, opening up about sin that they've done in their past. And I, I'll always ask after a person com- comes to me and confesses sin, like, how do you feel? How do you feel now that you've opened up about that? And 90 plus percent of the time, the answer is always lighter, or, or I feel free, and it's because we are. When we, we turn the light on and, and darkness runs, shame runs, like it's gone. We will feel lighter. That's a heavy thing to carry. Shame sucks, and it just wants to keep us stuck. I think the devil, like he loves to use shame because it keeps us stuck where we're at. It produces no change and eventually just leads to death. So godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, so what do we do with all this? What are, what are our action steps? I, I have four. Maybe the Holy Spirit's given you some other ones. Great, do them. But I have four I want to give you. Number one, ask God to rip off the calluses in your life so that you can feel grief for your sins, so that you can be cut to the heart when you need to be. And as I mentioned earlier, like, plead with God. Plead with God. If there's a part of your life where, where you see the check engine lights on, and you know, like, I should be feeling bad about this thing that I keep doing over and over and over and over again, but you don't. Just plead with him. God, rip the callus off my heart. Help me to feel the pain I should feel because of these actions I'm doing. And he will because he loves you. Second thing, repent. Right? Pursue transformed thinking. If, if there's a part of your life where you know you need to change, like you know you need to repent and change course, ask God, how do you want me to think differently? How do you want me to live differently? In, in, in what way should my course change, God? And pursue his word, pursue his spirit, pursue the church for, for those answers. Don't just like forget. I think it's so easy to to hear a message like this, and hopefully this is challenging. Like, this should be, cha- my goal with this morning was to be challenging. It's so easy to just, like, feel challenged for a little bit and then just kind of get on with life and forget about it. 
Don't do that. Don't do that. If you feel challenged and convicted right now, that's the Spirit of God. Listen to it. Listen to it. Third action step. Fight shame with confession. If, if, if there's some skeletons in your closet, there's things in your life that no one knows about, come, like, come to a, a trusted believer and open up to them about it. I think sometimes we use the, we, we're like, I, I confess that sin to God. I don't need to tell a person. The book of James commands us to confess our sins one to another and to pray for each other. Man, so if there's shame in your life, if there's sin in your life, if there's just anything that's hidden in your life, bring it to a, a, a person that you trust. Fourth action step. I, I'm stealing this. I've heard this from other people, but I love it. Ask a trusted, spiritually mature friend, where do you see sin in my life? Or, or where do I need to adopt different thinking in my life? That's humbling. It's a humbling thing to do to come to a person and say, hey, like, where, where am I failing? Like, where do you see sin in my life? But I think God can use that powerfully. So the, the rest of the chapter, Paul, uh, he, he touches on the ways that he's seen repentance have its effect on the Corinthians. He mentions earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal. He says at every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It just further emphasizes the point that, that repentance uh, is a changed course. Like something will look different in our life if we've successfully walked through repentance. And then he continues the rest of the chapter to just reiterate this joy and the comfort that him and Titus feel because of the Corinthians' repentance. But then he closes in verse 16, closes the chapter with this, and I want to close with this. It says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And I'll just say that. I, I have confidence in you. I have confidence that the past or the future doesn't need to look like the past. That, like, for those of you that, that you, you, you have just a perpetual, ongoing sin struggle in your life, God is powerful enough to break you free from that. He is. I have confidence in you that, that in, similarly to how the Corinthians took Paul's rebuke and they repented, I think you guys are going to do the same thing. My prayer is that you would and that I would. I have complete confidence in you, church. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and worship team, you can come back up. Jesus, thank you that you love us so much that you won't let us just sit in our sin. Thank you for the, the spirit of God. Thank you uh, that you bring conviction into our life. I just pray that, that if there's sin in our life that we maybe don't even recognize as sin or there's just something there that shouldn't be there, I pray you'd make us feel physically uncomfortable. Make us feel uncomfortable about our sin. God, I pray that you, you would just help us to return to a godly grief, an appropriate godly grief, because sin, it hurts you, it hurts people we love, and it hurts us. So God, I pray that it would hurt us. I pray that it would grieve us into repentance. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that, that we can't out-sin your grace, that even when we fail, like there's hope. So yeah, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you take these words um, and that they, they would stick in people's minds. They wouldn't be able to forget them. 
if there's sin, I, I pray that we'd be uncomfortable about it until we confess it to someone. Thank you for calling us higher, Jesus. In your name, amen.